As the world grapples with the escalating consequences of climate change, the devastating impact on our ecosystems is becoming increasingly evident. Coral reefs, which are vital to the health of our oceans and support an estimated 25% of all marine species, are facing severe challenges due to rising ocean temperatures. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia, a UNESCO World Heritage Site and the largest coral reef system on Earth, has experienced frequent and intense coral bleaching events, threatening its very existence. The damage inflicted by bleaching not only affects the marine life that depends on it, but also has far-reaching implications for the global climate. Coral reefs, which cover less than 0.1% of the ocean floor, are essential in supporting an estimated $375 billion per year eco-economy, such as fisheries, coastal protection and tourism. The loss of these reefs would have a profound impact on millions of people who rely on these reefs for their livelihoods, as well as countless species that call them home. As we confront the challenge of preserving these crucial ecosystems, could a promising technology called cloud brightening offer a potential solution to mitigating the effects of climate change on our reefs? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Thank you for joining us today on our final episode of our three-part series on saving our oceans. Today we chat with Dr. Daniel Harrison at Southern Cross University in Coffs Harbour as we delve into the world of marine cloud brightening, a technology that could halt coral bleaching and protect reefs across the planet. Welcome, Daniel. G'day, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us here today all the way from Australia. I wonder if you tell us about yourself and where you are this morning. So the National Marine Science Centre is in Sunny Coffs Harbour, which is sort of halfway between Sydney and Brisbane on the New South Wales coast. We're quite close to Byron Bay, which has become fairly famous lately because of the Hemsworths. And uh, I'm a, a senior lecturer and oceanographer at Southern Cross University. So I grew up in Sydney on the northern beaches at Narrabeen and spent most of my career at Sydney University before moving moving up here out of the out of the big city to a to a small coastal town where I quite enjoy uh, being away from the traffic. I wondered if you could get into a bit of detail and tell us what coral bleaching is uh, and what causes it. Sure. So coral bleaching is essentially a stress response of the corals and uh, th- there can actually be many different causes if, if corals get too cold or too hot they can bleach um, but but coral bleaching as it's mostly referred to these days is is the the stress response from the warming oceans and so corals are, are especially sensitive to temperature and they're highly adapted to whatever temperatures uh, wherever you, you you sort of find them so so corals in the northern Great Barrier Reef are, are more adapted to warmer temperatures and corals in the southern Great Barrier Reef are more adapted to, to slightly cooler temperatures that they're used to. 
but they have a very narrow temperature range that they're happy in and just one or two degrees above the normal maximum, if that's sustained for a, a few weeks, um, can lead to, to coral bleaching. And so what we've seen over the last uh, five or so years are these sort of recurrent mass bleaching events where the global ocean has, has warmed up so that the, the possibility of getting a marine heat wave on the Great Barrier Reef has increased dramatically. And what actually happens is the, the corals uh, sensitive to to both light and temperature. And so it's actually light in the presence of high temperatures that lead to bleaching. And the bleaching is a breakdown in the symbiosis between the, the coral, the animal host, and its symbiotic algae, which is uh, a plant and, and captures uh, sunlight through photosynthesis, like all plants, and actually provides most of the food by, by passing sugars, essentially, to the coral host. And so when the temperatures become too warm, the algae becomes toxic to the host and so the host expels it and, and it's also the algae that gives coral its colour. So the coral then becomes white. It's not yet dead, but if it, depending on how severe the, the bleaching is, the coral can can often then starve to death. If if the temperatures drop again quickly, then, then sometimes the coral can get repopulated with new algae and, and survive. So it really depends on the severity as to whether the coral survives or not. Wow. So it's not really just about changing colour. And what impact can that have on the whole ecosystem of, of a marine area? So essentially a, a sort of a, a, a isolated bleaching event, um, you know, it, it, it can lead to, to mass mortality of the corals. A lot of the corals die off. Um, if it's isolated, though, then then the, the corals can recover fairly quickly. Um, what, what we've been seeing on the Great Barrier Reef is that the – it's the fastest corals that are the most sensitive to bleaching, so they, they tend to die off, but then they tend to also grow back fairly quickly. But what's happening is this is, is sort of just the, the beginnings of, of climate change starting to, to really bite with its impact on the reef. And so as, as the marine heat waves become more and more frequent and more and more severe, then the, the reef has less time to recover and also the slower growing corals will start to become more and more affected. Um, and so ultimately, we think this will, uh, if, if sort of climate change continues unabated, this will lead to a, a, a gradual decline of the Great Barrier Reef um, and, and the ecosystem state will be sort of um, ir irrecoverably changed um, if, if we don't do something about climate change. Is there anything more profound than ruining the whole tourism industry for the Great Barrier Reef? What could be other than some of the other impacts? Well, coral reefs globally are, are suffering this problem, not just the Great Barrier Reef. And, and coral reefs globally are incredibly important for the marine ecosystem, uh, although they, they cover something like, like 1% or 2% of the, of the ocean surface area, they're home to around 25% of all marine species at some point in their life cycle. So that's an incredibly disproportionate importance uh, that coral reefs have in the global ocean. They also provide food security um, for a lot of nations and and also uh, coastal protection. So the reefs protect a, a lot of um, a lot of agricultural areas and, and settlements around the world. So they're they're very disproportionately important for for the size. And so, not to mention the the amount of marine life. Um, you know, the corals are the the foundation species that supports all of that other marine life. And so, if you lose the corals, then then everything else uh, you lose along with it. Wow, that's. Sounds catastrophic. 
Now, you appear to have been working on a solution. What, what's that solution? So one of the ideas that we're looking at in the Reef Restoration and Adaptation Program is cloud brightening. And so the, the reason that cloud brightening is of, of quite a lot of interest to us is it's, it's sort of inherently scalable to something as large as the Great Barrier Reef, which is, which is the size of Italy. So even though it's it's less than than 0.1% of the Earth's uh, oceans, it's it's um it's still very very large. And so the idea is is that essentially, under certain circumstances, uh, when clouds form naturally, they're not as bright as they could potentially be. And so the thing that controls the brightness is the availability of cloud condensation nuclei. Every single droplet in a cloud needs a, a tiny little particle of, of, of something in the air to condense around. If you have absolutely completely clean air, uh, which does sometimes occur at, at the poles in Antarctica, for example, then, then, then a cloud simply can't form. The, the supersaturation just keeps going up and, and the water vapor can't condense. And so what, what we think we have over the reef is, is one of these situations around the world where the air coming in over summer is coming from the, the South Pacific pr- predominantly, and it's it's very, very clean. It has very, very low numbers of, of natural uh, cloud condensation nuclei. And so the clouds, there's enough for the clouds to form, but they're not as bright as they could be. And so by adding more of these natural uh, cloud condensation nuclei, which over the ocean are predominantly just either sea salt crystals, tiny little nano-sized uh, crystals of sea salt, or uh, sulfur-based compounds from marine life, uh, then then we can brighten those clouds, reflect more sunlight away from the Great Barrier Reef and, and cool the water down during these marine heat waves. The, the word brightening, what do you actually mean by that? The full set of science of, of atmospheric interactions is is quite complex, but the, the basic uh, sort of main effect that's targeted is um, actually changing the size of the droplets in the cloud. So when the cloud forms, it's, it, there's a given amount of water vapor there that, that's controlled by, by macrophysical atmospheric processes. So we're not changing that. So you've got a, an updraft of air, the air's moist, um, and then as it rises, it's uh, it becomes supersaturated and that water vapor goes from being a gas to a liquid. And if you have very few cloud condensation nuclei, then that cloud is is forced to form quite large droplets. Now, large droplets are not very good at reflecting sunlight. Um, And so when you add the additional sea salt crystals, then it's the same cloud, but now it's made up of of many more smaller-sized droplets with the same total volume of water, but smaller-sized droplets are much better at reflecting sunlight. And you can can see this really quite remarkably. There's There's a good picture uh, floating around that demonstrates the effect where you have two glass jars filled with with glass marbles. So everything's perfectly clear, but one of the jars is filled with very small marbles and, and it appears white. And that's because it's very good at reflecting light. The other jar with the with the larger clear marbles appears quite dark and, and that's because it's not as good at reflecting light. Okay. But they're the same glass marbles, just a different size. So effectively, what you are doing is creating a shield over the the coral reef to prevent the sunlight getting all the way down through onto the coral. Is that is that right? 
In essence, yes, but maybe I'll explain a little bit further how it works in a practical sense. So the, the brightening is only a, a very small effect, you know, maybe 10 or 20% extra brightness. So it would be nearly impossible to tell by just looking at the clouds that they were any brighter. Um, and and that's that's when the cloud's there. And so averaged over over time, that's, that's only sort of a few percentage change in the average brightness from day to day. Um, or, or reduction in light, if you like to think about it the other way. Yep. But what happens is over time, you need to do this continually for a few months when, when you're having a, a marine heat wave that summer um, and the coral's at, at high risk of bleaching, the water temperature gradually cools down because it's not getting that extra radiative heat from the sun. And the Great Barrier Reef is a, it's a huge lagoon and it's actually all quite shallow. It's sort of typical depth is 30 or 40 metres. And so you have this large body of water that's trapped in this shallow lagoon. And it spends about six weeks or so in there, typically a month to six weeks. And so while it's in there, it gradually cools down a little bit each day. And if you're doing this continuously, once it gets to about six weeks or so, it sort of levels off because new water is coming in at, at more or less the same uh, rate as, as old cooled down water is going out. And so you're able to then maintain the, the temperature with a sort of a, a, a difference from what it would have been, so maybe half a degree or 0.75 of a degree cooler, which is enough to, to prevent most of the coral stress. So how do you get salt crystals into the clouds? So what we're trying to do is, is replicate the natural process. So the, the salt crystals over the ocean come from waves breaking on the ocean. So when the wind blows across the ocean, it, it makes those white caps that people would be familiar with. And, and in that process, lots of little droplets are getting flung off and, and some of those evaporate, leaving behind the salt crystal, which, which then gets mixed up to the clouds. So essentially what, what we're doing is the same thing, although we're, we're doing it uh, with, with machinery that's, that's a, sort of an adapted uh, snowmaking machine in a way. But we pump the seawater and then we atomize it. And it, it's hard to get your head around how small these salt crystals are. They're, they're nano-sized, so they're, they're sort of, you know, as small as a virus. And we we produce um, trillions and trillions and trillions of them uh, per second from just a, a sort of a shot glass of, of water, from just 30 milliliters of water. And so they're, they're incredibly small, but they and, – and that's why this technology – is sort of practically achievable over such a large area. It, it's because the the salt crystals are, are so small, but they have such a disproportionate effect. When one of those salt crystals uh, nucleates into a cloud droplet, it grows some five hundred thousand times in size. Whoa, these numbers are mind-boggling. Where did this idea actually come from? Who came up with this solution? So there was a, a after the sort of first of the contemporary mass bleaching events uh, back in in the summer of 2015 2016 here in Australia when when we saw this widespread really severe re, uh, bleaching across the Great Barrier Reef that we hadn't seen before it associated with with quite a lot of mortality um, and then again the next year over those two years we we, we lost up to fifty percent of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef in just two years. Um, and so that prompted a, a group of, of uh, scientists and, and engineers that, that I'd been working with for some time on various problems uh, to start to get together at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science and um, and start to look at different ways that we might be able to to help the, the corals. And, and the sort of basic premise was if, if the corals are getting too hot on the Great Barrier Reef, surely there must be a way to, to cool them back down a bit. 
And so this group looked at, at various different ideas for trying to help the reef. And, and we started off with, with one of the ideas that's probably most commonly suggested to our program, which is why don't you pump cold water up onto the reef? And so we had the same thought. We started looking into what it would take to, to pump deeper cold water up onto the reef. Um, but it's very energetically inefficient. You, the, there's a few problems to start with because the Great Barrier Reef is a, is a large, fairly shallow lagoon. There's not a lot of deep, colder water available. and the, the great thing about cloud brightening is that it's very energetically efficient. You, you get back many, many times return uh, from the, the small amount of energy that you put in to create the cloud condensation nuclei, the sea salt crystals. You get back a huge return of energy when nature then grows them 500,000 times to a cloud droplet. And then that magnifies further, of course, because you're reflecting the energy of the sun. And so the, the group was just working through various different ideas. Uh, and I think it was the, the late Professor Ian Jones that, that first suggested the cloud brightening idea. Um, but as we worked through different ideas, it was it was the cloud brightening that that just kept ticking all of the boxes. And so we sort of focused in on that as as, as really looking like a, a viable solution. Wow. So how can you possibly atomize these salt crystals across such a vast area? So you'd need a, a lot of stations, but the atmosphere does a lot of work, a lot of the work for you because it, it's very well mixed. Obviously, the, once you release them, the, the particles are, are traveling with the wind and, and getting mixed up to the clouds uh, by atmospheric turbulence. But um, you, you'd still need need probably if you, if you wanted to do the whole Great Barrier Reef at once, um, hundreds of stations. But we we it's not the whole reef that bleaches at once, and so we hope that with with um, predictive algorithms we might be able to target the region that's most likely to bleach that year we we, we have some some idea already we're, we're pretty good at predicting uh whether the reef will, will bleach or not in a in a coming summer but but not so great yet at, at predicting exactly where so so ideally that would improve a little bit to to sort of lower the cost um but you, the, the stations might be sort of a technology mix in the end. There's a, actually a surprising amount of ship traffic that goes uh, up and down the, the reef carrying cargo and, and, and other resources, uh, which could potentially have machines on the back. There's, there's islands that you could place some on, and, and then, but you'd also, also have to have a bunch either as, as movable vessels, specifically doing the cloud brightening, or perhaps uh, stationary barges that were, were serviced by a, a moving vessel. And so you'd have to have a whole network of stations along the reef. This, this might sound a little bit naive, but is this something that could be done across 24 hours a day? Or, or do you need the sun to be out for evaporation? There's not a, a, a lot of use to do it at night. And in fact, if you uh, sort of intensified the clouds at night, you might uh, tra trap more heat in and have the opposite effect. So so not quite 24 hours. You'd need to do it continuously uh, over the summertime, but you'd start each day and, and then sort of stop each evening. So is, is this an ultimate fix or, or just a temporary fix for coral bleaching? It's certainly not the ultimate fix. Um, I like to, to sort of liken it to, to putting something on life support. Um, it's a, it's not treating the underlying problem at all. It's, it's just helping to relieve the symptoms. So it's really only useful if it's accompanied by, by strong action on climate change. And we, we've seen this very clearly in the modeling that we do. If, if we manage to achieve a Paris type climate future where we dramatically reduce emissions and eventually get to, to net zero, 
um, then then the cloud brightening is enough to to see the reef through basically. Um, whereas if with with no intervention, the models show the the reef even under a Paris type agreement, um, you know, maybe not completely killed off, but very very close and very dramatic dramatically degraded. Um, but the models also show that if we if we don't also have strong emissions reductions, then the cloud brightenings, it's only enough to preserve the reef an extra couple of decades. It doesn't change the ultimate outcome. And that's because there's only a, a sort of a limited gap that we can exploit with the cloud brightening between sort of the maximum brightness of clouds and, and what we think over the reef that they're a little bit less than their maximum. And so you can't just keep doing more cloud brightening and get more cooling. There's a, a gap there that can be exploited. Um, but once you've used that up, then then that's all you get. So what are the, the barriers to you being able to scale this up? Um, so the, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. We've been working on this for a, a few years. In the beginning, it was all desktop studies. There was a couple of years just to convince ourselves that the idea would work over the Great Barrier Reef because there's not too many places in the world with with clouds that are susceptible to cloud brightening. Um, it's, it's only sort of a fortuitous uh, set of circumstances that mean that the, the reef is susceptible, we think. Uh, we still have to, to prove it. Um, uh, during the summertime at the, at when the corals are at risk of bleaching, it wouldn't work if you wanted to do this in winter over the reef because the air masses are different and, and the susceptibility is not there. Um, so we we still need to to go out and, and do experiments in the field to, to really prove that that it works the way that we think it will and, and it may not um, it's it's we're, we're still in the in the fundamental science part of this project in trying to understand uh, whether the theory is is correct or not um, but assuming that it is then, there's still a lot of work in in sort of the next step would then be optimizing the technology, getting the energy requirements as low as possible so that you could power the system with renewable energy. Uh, and also there's a, a lot of work being done on on social engagement with the community, with traditional owners along the reef, uh, with with governance as well. how do you how do you manage this? Uh, how do you make sure that the risks are acceptable? We're also doing a lot of research into any potential environmental risks. Uh, one of the good things is that the salt crystals only last in the atmosphere a, a day or two. So if if perchance you were changing rainfall patterns or something in a way that you didn't you didn't like, you could you could just stop. So that's a, a positive. Are there any other any risks that you have identified? Uh, I think the the there's a there's a whole suite of, of risks. And they range from everything from sort of you know have, having extra barges and equipment and, and that out on the reef, you know, should a cyclone come through, for example. So they they range from that sort of you know or, or risk of a collision with a vessel, for example, a sort of maritime risks right through to things like um, like the risk of, of altering rainfall patterns, um, which which is a fairly obvious one. And the, the CSIRO are doing a, a bunch of work into looking at whether the cloud brightening might might alter rainfall patterns at all, either either locally or more regionally. Um, it's it's a fairly small perturbation to the cloud, so we don't think that that's going to have too much effect. Um, but one thing that 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 could be a, a larger effect, which is really quite interesting, is that the 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 actual effect of cooling the ocean down might have a bigger impact on weather than um, than the cloud brightening itself. And that's because the weather's already changed over the last 50 years from, from warming the ocean up. 
And so it's a sort of an interesting question there is what's your baseline? Um, if you're comparing to the, to the weather you'd have in this newer, hotter climate, it might be different. It might be more similar to the weather that you would have had 50 years ago, for example. What's the sort of minimum size of area that you, you might be able to test this on? So for the experiments to, to find out whether it works or not, we're, we're targeting uh, sort of we're, we're making the sea salt um, crystals and we, we spray them out and they, they travel sort of about 10 to 15 kilometres downwind where they're still detectable and, and that sort of patch, if you like, um, expands out you know, to a, a couple of kilometres across and so we're, we're looking at, at sort of an area of, of 10 by a couple of kilometers. Um, and then that's, that's just large enough that, that we can, can also use satellites to measure change in the clouds. And we'll have an aircraft that, that will fly back and forth and, and measure the clouds sort of inside and outside that area to compare them. When do you think you'll have some definitive research on whether this is going to work or not? So we've spent the last few years um, essentially scaling up the technology and, and going in very gradual steps, and we'll continue to do that. This is in close consultation with the Great Barrier Reef uh, Marine Park Authority, who's responsible for managing um, and conserving the Great Barrier Reef. And so we, we, we're sort of doing things in, in very uh, a very staged approach. So the first experiment was very small, the next slightly larger and we're now up to a scale where we can start to look at the impact on clouds. It'll still probably be a couple of years um, before we can definitively say whether it works or not. But we're, we're, we're at the point now of, of starting to look at, at how the clouds respond to the sea salt crystals. Well, that sounds really exciting and obviously wishing you rapid success. Thanks so much for joining us here on Racing Green. Uh, thank you very much for having me. That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green is produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, and Georgina McGiven in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios, Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow. 